That passage that we just heard read, uh, it reminds me every time I read it of the safety speech that they give you every time you fly in a commercial airline. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever flown on an aircraft, um, as the plane prepares to be airborne, normally somebody in authority gets up and they, they give you a little bit of a speech on how to stay safe. They say things like, this flight is over water, so you need a life jacket. It's under the seat in front of you. And it's always fascinating because as the safety speech is happening, at least in my experience, nobody is paying attention. And on and on and on they go, right? An oxygen mask may fall from the ceiling, which could save your life. And this person is usually fast asleep. And I, likewise, I'm usually distracted trying to get on the Wi-Fi or something. Uh, you know, it's this juxtaposition of life-saving counsel and total disinterest, right? And the reason for that, at least in my perception, is that even though life-saving counsel is being announced, why people can absolutely have no interest in it whatsoever is because people generally on an aircraft don't perceive or they don't feel the danger that's being talked about, which is why you can sleep through a passenger safety announcement. Well, once upon a time, several years ago, my wife and I flew out of an airport where as the plane was taxiing and you could look out the window, you could actually see the wreckage of a plane that did crash. That safety announcement was very, very different. <laughs> Everyone had their mouth shut and their eyes open. That person had the attention of the crowd. And again, the reason for that is because people very, very, very much perceived the danger that was being discussed. That reminds me of this passage, because in it, the Apostle Paul is speaking about safety, and he is warning his readers to watch out for danger. Maybe it gripped you, or maybe it didn't. Look at verse 2. He says, in no uncertain terms, to watch out for something. In verse 1, he discusses a practice that keeps people safe. We've heard a lot about safety these past few years. And most of the time, Christians read this passage, and you're not automatically gripped, perhaps because you don't perceive the danger that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Here's the danger. He says it right there in verse 3. He says, the danger that he is trying to warn us against is putting your confidence in the flesh. Well, I wonder if you woke up this morning and thought of that as something to watch out for, if that made the list of, of dangers to, to your soul. I, I didn't. However, I think the Apostle Paul knows what he's talking about. The longer I have lived, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I believe that what is being discussed here is actually more of a danger to the church, perhaps, than we might realize. The struggle here that Paul is describing is Maybe we could describe it like this. Where do, does a Christian find their confidence in the day to day to day to day? That's what's being discussed here. I know it feels like we're walking into a conversation that's already in progress because we're picking up in the middle of a letter. That's okay. The, the, the thing that the Apostle Paul is discussing is this idea of confidence in Christ, which we have celebrated in our worship service. And the point of this passage and of this sermon this morning is that being in Jesus being a Christian or being in Christ, it means attaching our confidence to the resurrected Christ. Let me say that again. The main point of this sermon is that being a Christian means to attach your confidence to the resurrected Jesus. He's alive. 
and our confidence needs to be in him. We see this in three parts. I'm gonna divide the text into three little sections. Um, I believe you'll be able to follow along. The first way that Paul helps us to have correct confidence is he warns us about a false teaching. That's point number one. Paul is going to warn us about a false teaching. Look with me at verse 2. What is he watching out for? He says to look out or watch out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out or watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So there is the warning. It's right here. It's not a warning about things that maybe our culture are typically scared about, like, say, health crises or pandemics. The Apostle Paul here is warning about a false teaching that is prevalent in the day and age of the original hearers. I want you to notice the word dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is not using pejorative language there, and he's not, in my opinion, speaking about three different persons. It seems to me that Paul is talking about one ideology. He's not using the word dogs as an insult. He's using it to highlight a false ideology. The way we know that, I think, is verse 3. The reason statement says, for we are the circumcision. For we are the circumcision. See, dogs in the ancient world is, would be language for a Jewish person to perhaps talk about somebody who is not circumcised. So what's happening here is a dog in ancient Near Eastern Palarns is somebody who is unclean. It's referring to a person, usually, who is to be excluded because of uncleanliness. And very masterfully, I think Paul is flipping that around here, and he's saying there are persons who buy into a false teaching who are boasting about their circumcision, about their circumstance, or about their outward appearance, and who, quote, mutilate the flesh, I believe what he's saying is that there is a falsehood that is telling people that they need to be circumcised to have a connection to the living God. And Paul's saying, those are the people who are actually unclean. Those are the ones who are excluded from the activity and from the, from the delight of knowing Jesus Christ. And I think the principle he's highlighting is that outward activity, here's the false teaching, outward activity, it's not the same thing as the Spirit of God. That's the principle. He is saying outwardness, circumcision, or activity is not the source, brothers and sisters, of our spiritual confidence. It's a little bit like a scam. Years ago, I remember a scam that went down as a child in Jamaica. I heard about this thing on the news. It was when plasma TVs were sort of the new thing. There was a guy in Jamaica selling plasma TVs out of the back of a truck around Christmas time. And this made national news at the time because everyone bought these for thousands of dollars only to go home and realize they could look at the box and see the plasma TV. And as they ripped it open and when they looked at the inside of it, this is what the, the heading said. Man sells plasma TVs that turned out to be brand new oven doors. <laughs> because you could look through the box and apparently an oven door looked a whole lot like it. Now, why does that scam work? Well, it works just like every other scam. It works if it can give you a false degree of confidence merely by looking at the outside. Do you see it? That is surely the dynamic that is being discussed here and many other places in the scripture. There is a spiritual scam that you can buy into and it rests on confidence in outward things. 
And this is first and foremost referring to circumcision. This is first and foremost saying that you need to go through this ritual in order to be close to God. But a version of this, I believe, is still prevalent today. Maybe you're not inclined to think about it in terms of circumcision, but there are many strategies that are void of the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus Christ that can help you, quote, get your life in order. If you're sad, just do these steps. If you feel guilty, if you say Hail Marys, this activity that will ensure closeness. And I would even say, as a Christian, it is tempting to think about self-help books that will help you, quote, do it the right way, or parenting material that's generally underscoring the prevailing attitude that if I do everything right, I will avoid all trouble and my life will go very, very well. And perhaps, maybe some of those things are wonderful things to do, but see the contrast. Paul says that they might not help you worship by the Spirit of God. There are lots of things out there that are schemes of security and confidence. But look at verse 3. Paul says, true Christians, they glory in Jesus. True Christians savor that the living, resurrected one is our hope. So watch out, he says, for ideology, for persons, for teaching, that will incline you to think that there's closeness and life to be found that does not need Christ, that doesn't help you worship by the Spirit of God. See, those things usually take you down a path of thinking very, very highly of yourself and having a spirituality where I guess you are the hero of your destiny and help you glory in Jesus. That's the first part. Do you see that there's a false teaching and Paul is saying, here's a false teaching, but my aim is to help you glory in Jesus and to put your confidence in Christ. Now, I think that's remarkable, but here is the plot twist, I believe. As you know, most of this section, after talking about a false teaching, here's point number two, it seems to me Paul employs a second strategy. The second strategy I'm calling a powerful testimony. A powerful testimony. So look, after speaking about an ideology, Paul gets a little bit personal. This is in verse 4. Reread this again with me. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, a people of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Paul says he was, he was blameless. So notice right after speaking about an ideology in general, we encounter the abundance of the word I, which is a first person singular pronoun. Paul is speaking about himself which is sort of brilliant if you think about it, because instead of just giving a professional lecture against the Judaizers and why you can't put your hope in outward things, Paul says, I'm going to give a personal lesson. I'm going to share a testimony from my own life. And here, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me. He says, if you're to measure spiritual outwardness, he's the black belt. If you were to measure spirituality by outwardness, Paul's the boss. That's what he said. If you really think you were good at Sunday school, Paul says, I'm better. 
If you think you have something to brag about before God, Paul says, let me put that to bed right now, once and for all, for the church of Jesus. He shares about himself here, and I want you to see things. Individual things are on his spiritual resume, as well as corporate things are on his resume. Here are some individual accomplishments. He says, I was a zealous Pharisee. Did you notice that? He says, I was able to be blameless, and I pursued what I thought was obedience with my whole heart. That's an individual accomplishment. Paul completed a spiritual PhD. That's evident in the word Pharisee. And there are also corporate recognition things. He talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews and having a corporate identity of the tribe of Benjamin. Translation, he has many of the things that our culture still daydreams about to give us a sense of comfort and outward confidence in this life. And the amazing thing that Paul says is that something happened to him. He met Jesus. He learned that he could know Jesus, that he could have a relationship with the living Lord. And when someone has a true encounter with Christ, when someone has this recognition of the grace of God, a new accounting happens in their life. They start to do a different kind of math and calculus, so to speak, about what they value. I'd like to pull out three threads from Paul's testimony I didn't want to deprive you of alliteration entirely, so I'll give you the three threads. Here they are. In his testimony, they all start with R. Paul says, earthly gain as rubbish, self-abandon as righteousness, knowing Jesus as resurrection. Those are three strands to the testimony. Let me say them again. In his personal testimony, he says earthly gain. He speaks of earthly gain as rubbish. He has self-abandon as righteousness and knowing Jesus as resurrection. Let's take them one at a time. The first one is earthly gain as rubbish. Well, did you hear that word in verse 8? I count them all as, as rubbish. I think that would have been more powerful if Pastor Mark said that word, because I always want to say that in a British way. I don't know why I hear the word rubbish. <laughs> You get the idea of something that is to be rejected. It reminds me of my college days when a bunch of us were leaving for a winter break once when I was a junior or senior in college. We were in such a rush to leave our apartment that we left a half gallon of milk on the counter of our apartment. All of winter break. So we all came back in January for the second semester. And we walked in all together saying, oh, it's nice to see you. Oh, my goodness, there is a gallon of milk on the counter. We thought it was a gallon because the half gallon had swollen up to the size of a gallon. So we're left with this moment of us as very dull-witted college students at the time saying, what should we do with it? And instead of throwing it away, someone said, let's open it. You see where this is going? They opened it. It shrunk. It, it just shot putrid air into the apartment. And we didn't rehearse this. We didn't talk about it. But as all three of us were standing over it, we recoiled at the same time and said, oh, Get it out of here. Someone just threw it out a window. A second story window, right? It's, it's what's being communicated in this word. It's get it out of here. I treat it as refuse, says Paul. That is the graphic sense being conveyed in verse 7 and 8. Look at it. He talks about loss and rubbish. So surely this man is onto something. He says, whatever gain I had, I, I count it as loss. 
In verse 8 again, the second half, he says, I count everything as loss. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And here it is. I count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. So compared to Jesus, Paul is saying, people thinking, Paul, that you are wonderful and you have your act together. Surely you know all of the secrets of spirituality, right, Paul? Because you learned them in Pharisee school. And Paul says, rubbish. Being a distinguished academic, PhD Paul, why don't we call you that? Doesn't that give you a sense of confidence? Paul says, rubbish. He doesn't find it appealing. He says it's off-putting. What about being so good and thought of being so distinguished among the crowd? I think the Apostle Paul would say, because I have Jesus, I think of that as rubbish. Why can he use that strong of a word? I believe what he's saying is that those things Those earthly schemes of confidence, they tend to hold us back from taking hold of and gaining Christ. People often think that Jesus Christ, if you, quote, become a Christian, that Jesus is a ticket to get some sort of goods. And Paul's saying, I count those things that you think are earthly gain as rubbish because Jesus is not a ticket. Jesus is the treasure. And worldly gain distorts that. Worldly gain can give you a fragile pride because if people think you are the best at anything, that will most incline you to put your confidence where it does not belong and to make these things the measure of your joy. And as a campus minister, I have seen so many Christians who deeply struggle with insecurity, who deeply struggle with anxiety because they are in love with earthly gain. And Paul says, speaking comparatively here, maturity as a Christian, in a sense, there is a sense in which maturity as a Christian means learning to see certain things and consider them to be rubbish. When you stand before God, will that thing enter your mind as urgent? See, that's the first thread, earthly gain as rubbish. Here's the second R. Paul talks about self-abandon as righteousness. Self-abandon as righteousness. In his testimony, we have verse 9, and it's, a, it's an important verse. He says, to, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, that depends on faith. So that, that, that verse has one of the most important contrasts in the New Testament because he's saying here that there are fundamentally very, two very different ways to approach this idea of righteousness. You see, righteousness. If you're not sure what righteousness is, an, an easy way to understand it, I think of that word every time I see my children play outside. You know, it's been warm, so they've been outside. And my kids have a fascinating ability to get covered in mud from head to toe within about 10 seconds. And very often I'll come down and I am mostly dressed and showered and I'll go outside and I'll see one of my beloved children covered in mud. Okay, how does righteousness work? You know what you could say as a parent, which we know this doesn't work, you can say, you muddy child, use the mud on your hands to clean the mud off of your face. And that doesn't go very well, does it? 
because they're completely engrossed in it. They are unclean. This is why the scripture talks about cleanliness so much. That's why in Isaiah we read about filthy rags as much of our self-produced self-righteousness. It's like a child who's covered in mud trying to get the mud off. Well, certainly that's how every world religion works. That's the righteousness that is attempted from me, Paul says. That's one of the attempts at righteousness. However, Christianity is not, is not righteousness that I present to God, that I clean myself up in my own filth with, that, that doesn't work. Christianity is God in his cleanliness, taking on our uncleanliness to robe us and cleanse us and wash us clean. That's the righteousness that Paul says is from God. One of them is from me, The other is alien righteousness gifted from God. And Paul's saying that's the reality of his life. Confidence has come to him because he has actually abandoned his sense of self-righteousness. He is content and confident of being clothed when he stands before the living God because of the finished work of Jesus. I think the implications of this are tremendous. Because if earthly gain is rubbish, Paul is saying, I don't really care what other people think of me. But here, his self-abandonment, his sense of righteousness being found in Jesus, he's saying that he's actually, he doesn't care what he thinks about him. Because as he meets the Lord, he doesn't want to have a self-righteous resume to present. He says, instead of that, I want to be found. I want to be found in Christ through faith. This means there's cleanliness, there's righteousness to be found, there is freedom to simply saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the accounting of a Christian. And this means, I do believe, that learning to forget about ourselves is a part of Christian maturity, not not self-abasement, but self-abandon. Our performance and our obsession with self fades because Paul has said earthly gain as rubbish, that's the first thread. He has said self-abandon as righteousness, that's a second thread. Here's the third R, he talks about knowing Jesus as resurrection. And brothers and sisters, I find this to be incredible. Look with me again at verse seven. Look at the way this man speaks about a living relationship with Christ. He says, for the sake of Christ. Verse eight says, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 8, the second half, says he wants to gain Christ. And verse 10 talks about knowing the power of Jesus's resurrection. It seems like Paul can use the word rubbish, not merely as a superlative, but because on the other side of the balanced scale of comparison, we have knowing Jesus. Friends, do you believe that? He's saying that Jesus is not a ticket. Jesus is the treasure. And that you can, through faith, know him. He himself is the thing that we're after. Why is he the treasure? Well, for one reason, all of us will die, our earthly bodies. And all of this that we value, all of the reputation and resume that we build will fail and fade. And the other contrast in this passage is Paul says there is a life of earthly distinction, and then there is the life that is 
eternal. Look at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul talks about sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It seems as if Paul believes that Jesus Christ really is alive and that because he was raised, he is able to raise us out of the futility and out of the misery of our world. So the point of life, according to the Apostle Paul, cannot be the flattery of someone applauding you. It cannot be the American dream, thank God. He's saying that you, through Jesus, can have resurrected life now. That you can live a a, a resurrected life now through Christ that will lead to a resurrected life later. Did you see him say that? So what's the point of life if you were to ask Paul? He wouldn't say his resume. He would probably say something like, in my resurrected body, I want to stand and I want to see the Lord of glory one day. I want to behold Christ with my eyes and Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning and he'll be publicly acknowledged to be the true king of kings. I want that to be the point of life. I want to fellowship with him and I want to know Christ unto eternity. Therefore, no matter how difficult life gets. And I know, brothers and sisters, many of you have tasted of that difficulty this past year and this past month. No matter how difficult life gets, Paul says, did you see that phrase? We are participating in his suffering. That means in a way you're getting to know Jesus better, even as we shed tears. And through faith in Jesus, we will stand there And so will other Christians. And when you see Christ, my brothers and sisters, if we can even speak, I am guessing we will say, everything we went through was worth it. It really was rubbish. Heartache, loss, suffering, yes, even sickness. It was worth it to see this. And this prepared me to see Jesus get the honor that is due to his name. That's the accounting of a Christian. So, brothers and sisters, I think the appeal of this is the Apostle Paul is saying to come into a life of resurrection. Live as a resurrected person now and long to be raised to the next. Do you see his testimony? What a powerful testimony. He's saying, he's pleading with you through his personal example, put no confidence in the flesh. It's not a safe place to be. That's his personal testimony. Now, before we'll close, I have one last thread I want to point out, and it has very much ministered to me as I have thought about this text. Paul has given us, he's given us a false teaching to help us put our confidence in the right place. He, he's, given us, he's given us his personal, powerful testimony to give us a correct confidence. But as we close, very briefly, I want you to see that he has given us a very, very simple safeguard That's the third point. I'm calling it a simple safeguard. There's a false teaching. Watch out. There's a personal testimony. Look at my life. But also, he has given a commandment, which I believe is a simple way to safeguard our lives against incorrect confidence. This is in verse 1. This is in verse 1. And I love the simplicity with which Paul writes. 
Did you, could you look back at verse 1, just scroll back on your phones or in your Bibles real quick? He says this. The way he began this section was to say, finally, my brothers, here's his commandment. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Hang on a minute. So it seems to me a way that we can practice resurrected living right now. Did you see the imperative? is to rejoice in the Lord. Do you know what that means? What does that mean? Rejoice in the Lord cannot mean just saying, no worries whenever something bad happens, right? It cannot mean that. In the context of these verses, may I offer a suggestion? It seems to me that Paul is saying, every time you and I feel a longing or a lack in this life, we can celebrate and recognize the eternal provision that God has already made. Let me say that again. Rejoice in the Lord. What, what might that mean? Here's one thing it means. It means anytime we feel a lack or a longing in this life, we are able by faith to celebrate the provision, the eternal provision that God has already made. What I mean is if you struggle right now with the longing and the lack of loneliness, you can, brothers and sisters, ask God to provide for you in your season of loneliness. But as you do that, you know what you can do? You can rejoice in the Lord. You can say, God, I am lonely. Would you provide companionship? But thank you, God, that you have provided and that the eternal loneliness of soul I will never know because Christ has provided for eternal companionship and I'm welcomed into the Godhead. Thank you that even though if it feels lonely, I rejoice in you by faith that the Spirit of God is with me at all times. See, that's rejoicing, not circumstance, in the Lord. It's a resurrected life right now. If, similarly, if you feel absolutely bankrupt, if you lack in the department of finances, my friends, we can ask that God would provide. We should plead with him to provide and to meet your material needs and as we ask for provision, we can, you can rejoice in the Lord that Christ Jesus, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. We rejoice in the Lord, and I will never be spiritually bankrupt. And the suffering I endure now is his suffering and fellowship with, with him. This is a practice I believe he is commending to us. This means even sitting down at an amazing meal on a Sunday afternoon means you can say, God, thank you and thank you for the banquet you prepare for me in glory. And yes, even if you are sick, we can thank God as we ask for his sovereign hand to heal you we can thank him that there is no sickness in the life of a Christian that will ever be terminal because a resurrected body awaits for you, brothers and sisters. This is rejoicing in the Lord. See, it's a, it's a way that we can safeguard ourselves. Even on your birthday, you can say, happy birthday. God, thank you that I'm born again. And that, Paul says, is a safeguard to not put your confidence in the flesh. Friends, have you ever perceived where do you put your confidence to be a danger? I plead with you to learn to rejoice in the Lord. In many ways, that's what we come to now as we come to this table. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, God, we bow before you in awe of your great work of salvation. Thank you that you have provided for us a way to be in fellowship with you, the living God. I pray that you would minister comfort to people who acutely feel a longing or a lack right now. I pray there would be rejoicing in you throughout this room as we participate in this table. We pray in your name. Amen.